If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your copy of God's totally trustworthy and true word to Genesis 35. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 29. Page 29. Wonder, how would you define faithfulness? And how important is the virtue of faithfulness to you personally and practically? A couple of uh, dictionary definitions define faithfulness as being steadfast in affection or allegiance. Uh, the quality of being true to one's word or commitments. A lasting loyalty and trustworthiness in relationships. Now think about those definitions in the context of your relationships. How important is it to you that your spouse be steadfast in affection? Uh, if you're not married, how important is it that your friends be loyal and trustworthy? How important is it to you that your employer be true to his word? Say, for example, when it comes to the matter of your paycheck. Uh, we desire faithfulness and for it to be demonstrated, don't we? Uh, faithfulness in our everyday lives and in our human relationships is far more profoundly important than we often realize. But what about in your relationship with God? Don't you want God to be faithful too? The Bible teaches us that God is faithful. So Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 declares that he who promised is faithful. That's a remarkable attribute of God because he, being perfectly holy, just, and good, has bound himself to people like us who are, well, not perfectly holy, just, and good. In human relationships, the, the affection of a spouse can sadly waver. In human relationships, friends are not always loyal and trustworthy. I mean, sometimes they ghost you or gossip about you. In human relationships, employers are not always true to their word. Sometimes they lie. Contrast that to the faithfulness of God, whose love and affection for his people never wavers. God is always trustworthy. God never abandons his people, and God's attachment to his people abides forever. This morning, as we study Genesis 35, we see God's great faithfulness to a people who are very flawed. Uh, we've been studying the book of Genesis. We've been studying Jacob and his family's journey back to Bethel since, really, Genesis chapter 31. And our chapter today, Genesis 35, it continues to follow the pilgrimage of Jacob. That's why we sang a bunch of songs about traveling. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. He leadeth me. And we see in Genesis 35 that we go back to Bethel and really beyond. You remember the last chapter we studied together, Genesis 34, it closed with a delinquent father and destructive sons. Depravity marked Jacob and his family. And amazingly, what we learn as Genesis 35 opens is that God does not abandon his people or his promises. In his mercy and grace, he, he actually speaks to them. God keeps his promises to his sinful people and through his sinful people. And beloved, that is the sermon in a sentence. God keeps his promises to sinners and through sinners. God keeps his promises to sinners and through sinners. That is good news. That is great news. That is the best possible news for sinners like you and me. 
God will not abandon us. Instead, he will appeal to us to come to him. He will appeal to us to, to come to him and know the riches of his grace. And you might be tempted to think that since God's promises never fail, you can just go on living however you want to live. But you'd be wrong. God calls for you to be transformed through worship. And here's the first point that Genesis 35 makes. God wants all of your worship. That will inevitably bring about a transformation. There's a full outline provided there in your bulletin. But here's the first point. God wants all of your worship. We can find this in Genesis 35 verses 1 to 8. So follow along as I read Genesis 35 verses 1 to 8. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. First one of this chapter I think should absolutely astound us. In the last chapter, remember in Genesis 34, God and his righteousness was abandoned. The people of Israel became entangled with the people of Canaan. And as a result, sin rushed in. Uh, Shechem and the city, they sinned against Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. Jacob then sinned in his silence by not confronting them. And Jacob's sons sinned by deceiving the city, de destroying all the males of Shechem, and then decimating the city by taking all of the remaining people and property. And in the face of such wickedness, even wickedness perpetrated by the people of God, God does not say, go away. He doesn't say, it's over. He doesn't say, we're done. He says, come. Come home. He says, come to me and give me all of your worship. Is, is that what God is saying to you? Perhaps you recognize that, like the people of Israel, there's a, a long line of sin in your life. Friend, let me encourage you to realize that God, he, he does not wink at your sin. He doesn't think sin's okay. No, he deals with it by sending his son to bear the punishment for your sin. And because Jesus has paid it all, you owe all to him. So hear the call of God this morning to come to Jesus Christ and live. Live for the glory of Jesus. You can see there at the end of verse 1 that God reminds Jacob of when he spoke to him in the past. That's what those words, when you fled from your brother Esau, do. They, they call to mind what happened back in Genesis chapter 28. 
There God met with Jacob. He reassured Jacob of his presence and his promises. He reminds Jacob of his past grace, and he invites him to build an altar again and to return to worship again. God's grace toward Jacob has already been established. God's promises of salvation to Jacob have already been secured and spoken. And you need to keep that clearly in your mind in light of what we read there in verses 2 and 3. Jacob rightly calls his household and all who are with him to do three things. You see them there to put away the foreign gods they possessed, to purify themselves and to change their garments, and to arise and to proceed to Bethel, the place of worship. Brothers, this is how a godly man leads his family. Jacob doesn't suggest that false worship be abandoned. Put away and purify our instructions. Jacob calls his household to repent of all known sin. But Jacob doesn't stop there. Jacob then invites his household to come with him to worship. This is not just a matter of ungodly habits. This is a matter of the heart. Right? Jacob wants his family to give their hearts to the Lord in worship. That is an undiluted, good, and right way to lead your household to address ungodly habits and call for heart change while you depend upon the grace of God to make that change. Jacob's family, they had been worshiping false and foreign gods. This likely began with Rachel when she stole her father's household gods back in Genesis 31. Consider how that unchecked sin has now spread to multiple members of the family. The, the worship of false and foreign gods likely compounded during Jacob's time spent in Shechem, kind of dwelling among the Canaanites. And without a conscious effort to remain distinct from the world, the people of God are likely to absorb the practices of the world. And added to this, Simeon and Levi, they had ransacked the city of Shechem with all of its goods. That would have probably included the acquisition of even more household gods. And Jacob's saying, bring them all here. We need to deal with these false gods. And as those made in God's image, we need to recognize that we were made for worship. We, we actually can't help but worship. If we don't worship, ascribe the worth that's due to the one true God, the triune God, we will worship something and someone else. We will allow that something or someone else to take the highest place in our life, to set the governing agenda for us. We can't help but worship. Jonathan Edwards was right when he wrote, Men will either worship the true God or some idol. It is impossible it should be otherwise. Something will have the heart of man. And that which a man gives his heart to may be called his God. Well, what have you given your heart to? What is your God? What's ruling your life? Setting the agenda for your life. What Jacob says there in verses 2 and 3 is a call to repentance and renewed worship. Repentance is turning away from sin and then turning back to God. Every one of us here this morning needs to repent. Every one of us needs to turn away from sin and turn back to God. We, we don't accomplish our salvation. We cannot save ourselves. Jesus has accomplished our salvation by his life, death, and resurrection. We repent because grace and salvation has been offered to us in Jesus Christ. Dear friend, I wonder what sins and idols are you holding on to, clutching on to, feeling like you, you can't give up because it'll totally change your life and that's all that you know. Don't lie to yourself and pretend that you don't have any idols. Don't 
don't believe that though you've set yourself on this course, you can't change and go back. You can, by the grace and help of God. We all battle idolatry. The French reformer once said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. So for some of you, you worship the idol of identity. You must be this and the world must look at you in this way. They must know you as that kind of particular person. Some of you worship the idol of control. Trying to manage every particular decision that arises in your life. Every calendar decision. Others worship the idol of career. Some of you worship the idol of safety. Others, the idols of ease and sloth. Some worship the idol of pleasure and impurity. Uh, Still others worship the idol of covetousness, longing for what God has not given. And as we read earlier in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, we must put away them all. And isn't that what Jacob is saying in verse 2? Put away the foreign gods that are among you. The people of Israel, first hearing this book in the wilderness, those who were right been rescued from Egypt on their way home to the promised land of Canaan, they were hearing this. They would hear an echo of the opening commandments, right? They would remember what God said at Mount Sinai. Thou shalt have no other gods but me. And before no idol bow thy knee. What we so often fail to remember in those commands is that God's desire is for us to give all of our worship to him. Our God is a jealous God. The husband of Israel desires and is due all of the love and worship of his people. The call to repentance is the call to return to the God who loves you. The command to purify yourselves and change your garments there in verse 3 would have been also familiar language to the people of Israel. When they prepared to receive the, the revelation of the law at Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 10, they were commanded to purify and wash their garments. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jacob tells them to put away sins and to put on new clothes. Again, think back to our scripture reading we read earlier in the service. What did Paul command the Colossians to do in Colossians chapter 3? He commanded them to put off their old sins and the old self and to put on Christ-like virtue, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and love. Paul was probably picking up on what we're seeing here in Genesis 35 in this call to repentance and renewal. Friend, again, don't let Satan tempt you to think that you can't give up your idols and sins, that they define you. No, God who made you, designed you, and he defines you as one he loves and cares about. With the grace and help of the Holy Spirit, you can give up those idols. You can arise and go to God, just like Jacob and his family arose and went up to Bethel. Did you notice that? Go up to Bethel. That's not just a topographical kind of marker. Yes, Bethel, scholars will tell you, is about a thousand feet above where the family of Jacob presently was. But in the Bible, going up signifies going up to worship. So just think of the the Psalms of Ascent when the ancient people of Israel were on their way to Jerusalem for worship. They were going up to Jerusalem. Yes, again, Jerusalem was on a mountain, but they were spiritually ascending even as they were physically ascending. That's what worship does. It, It lifts our hearts up to the Lord. Remember, that is what this call to repentance and renewal is all about. It's it's not just a changing of our sinful and ungodly habits. It's about giving our hearts, all of them, without reserve to the Lord. Is that what you've done? Have you given your heart without reserve to the Lord to have his way 
in your heart. You know, verse 4 is one of my favorite verses in this chapter. Jacob's family, they do just as Jacob had instructed them to do. They gave to Jacob all, do you see that there? All the foreign gods that they had. Praise God when sinners repent. It's a wonderful, joyful thing, right? The angels in heaven rejoice. And there's also a subtle lesson here for the people of Israel. If gods can be handed over and buried under a tree, then they aren't worthy of worship in the first place, right? If your God can be manhandled and manipulated and muted by a pile of dirt, it's not worthy of worship to begin with. It's not a real God. That was a lesson for the people of Israel who were so often tempted by the idols of the nations around them. And it's a lesson for us here too. We need to put our idols and sins to death. We need to bury them and leave them behind forever by the grace of God. Idols, they leave us empty. Idols are enslaving. Idols don't give safety or the satisfaction that they promise. But God does. Did you see that in verse 5? God gives the safety to his people. Verse 5, and they journeyed. A terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Now think back to the end of last chapter, chapter 34. This is what Jacob was worried about. Uh, Simeon and Levi had kind of destroyed the city. Jacob was worried that the surrounding cities and peoples were going to come and attack them. But who is going to protect God's people? It's going to be God himself. Look at what God does. He protects his people as they make their pilgrimage. And this, this is what happened with the people of Israel too. As they left Egypt, they journeyed through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And we read in Exodus chapter 15, verses 13 to 17, we read Moses' song and he sings about how God redeemed his people and how he was a refuge for his people, protecting his people. Moses sings about how the fear seized the inhabitants of Philistia, how the courage of the Canaanites melted away. Moses, he sings about how the leaders of Moab trembled. He sings about how terror and dread fell upon the chiefs of Edom. That's Esau's offspring. As the people of Israel or hearing the book of Genesis, they're realizing that what God did for Jacob, he did for them. What God did on Jacob's journey, he did on their journey. And that gives the people of Israel all the more reason to give all of their worship to God. Beloved, doesn't Jesus' victory over sin and Satan and death, our enemies, doesn't Jesus' victory give us all the more reason to give all of our worship to him? That doesn't mean that life will be without trials and temptations. That doesn't mean that life will be without battles and burdens. The people of God in the past faced all of those things. And the people of God today will face them too. But beloved, Jesus has defeated our enemies of sin and death. And so he deserves all of our worship. Observe that in verses 6 to 8, that's exactly what Jacob's family does. They arrive in Bethel, the place where God met Jacob in the past, and Jacob leads them in worship. I think that this signals a change in Jacob. The last time that uh, he was here, he named it Bethel, which means the house of God, right? Jacob was enamored with the place. God is in this place. He was enamored with what happened here. But now Jacob renames Bethel El Bethel, which means the God of Bethel. Jacob recognizes that it was not what happened there that was significant. But who met him there that was significant? Jacob is now no longer enamored with the place, but the God who met him in that place and revealed himself 
to him in that place. Is that true for you? I wonder, why, why do you come to church? Why do you come to, to this place? To meet with God? I mean, I, I always want you to come here. And, and be careful that you come because you want to know God more. Be careful about coming to church because the experience makes you feel good about yourself. Be careful about coming to church because it makes you feel like you're, you're doing your religious duty and you've earned one more step to heaven. God wants you to know Him. God doesn't just want you to know forms of worship. In the course of worship, God wants to inform you about Himself. He, he wants you to remember His grace and His rescue, just like He wanted Jacob to remember His grace and rescue from Esau. He, he wanted Jacob to remember that God had protected him his whole life long. God wants your whole heart. He doesn't want you keeping any idols in it. God wants you to know him as the almighty, all-loving, all-sufficient God who intends to bring you all the way home. And he wants you to know that worship is a major part of how he transforms you. Which brings us to verse 8. It's a most curious verse. Uh, it, it appears almost as an aside. But Moses is teaching us something. In verse 8, you see there that we're told that Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. Now, we, we met Deborah back in Genesis chapter 24 when she left home with Rebekah. Rebekah went off to marry Isaac, and, um, and Jacob's father, and, and Deborah actually went with her. This is actually, though, the first time that we're getting Deborah's name. So when she left home in the past, she, she, she actually did, we didn't get her, get her name. We're getting it here. Uh, one reason that we might be told of Deborah's death was because she was a faithful servant and a much-beloved servant in the family. But there's something else that's puzzling. We're actually not told of Rebekah's death. Did you realize that? We're not told of the death of Isaac's wife, Rebekah, but we're told of the death of Rebekah's nurse, Deborah. It's almost as if Moses is saying, we don't talk about Rebekah. No, no, no. We don't talk about Rebekah. She helped Jacob deceive her husband, Isaac. And we're leaving that life of deception behind. Just like the family of Jacob buried their idols, so we're going to bury that past history of deception in Jacob's life. Jacob's life is no longer going to be marked by deception. That was an idol for him. He depended upon deceit to keep him safe, but no more. Now he's going to depend upon God and his promises. Jacob is going to live as a new man. That's why in the verses that follow, we're reminded of Jacob's new name. We've considered that God wants all of your worship now we turn to consider the truth that God keeps all of his promises. This is the second lesson that Genesis 35 teaches us. God keeps all of his promises. Follow along as I read verses 9 to 15. 9 to 15, Genesis 35. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him 
in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in a place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. These verses are a wonderful summation of all of God's promises. Really, the promises that God has made to his people throughout the whole course of the book of Genesis so far. And these promises that we see here, they actually have implications for reaching far beyond Genesis. In fact, they set the agenda for the rest of the storyline of the Bible. The promises that God makes to Jacob here are bound up with his promises concerning his son, Jesus Christ. We're told there in verse 9 that God appeared to Jacob again. What a kind God we serve. Jacob fails over and over again. And God meets him in his grace over and over again. Hasn't God met you in his grace over and over again? To restore you over and over again. This meeting is again hearkening back to God's gracious self-disclosure the last time he met with Jacob at Bethel. That happened in Genesis 28 verses 10 to 22. And all of the promises made there in Genesis 28 really reappear here. Why would God remind Jacob of his promises again? Why would Moses, the one who's writing Genesis, why do you repeat them again? Because, beloved, we forget again and again. As a good father reminds his children over and over again of his truth and his teaching, so our gracious Heavenly Father reminds us of his purposes and his promises over and over again. There's safety in being reminded of the purposes of God. They guard us from going back to our old ways, and they goad us into walking in God's way. And think about the fact that Jacob, he needed this reminder. His name had already been changed to Israel in Genesis 32. But think about how he had lived since that time in Genesis 33 and 34. He lied to his brother Esau and went in a different direction. He was sinfully negligent and silent in Shechem. He needed to remember how all of the promises of God should propel him to live for God. Jacob needed to remember who God was and who he was for God. That's what we're reminded of his new name again there in verse 10. Just like Abraham received a new name, it happened in Genesis 17, 5, when God revealed his purposes and promises to him, so Jacob receives his new name again. And giving a name is a big deal. Uh, I have known expecting parents who will come up with lists of names that they hope to give to their new child. I've been one of them. Uh, some of them, maybe me, uh, might even go through the exercise of making sure the middle name in connection with the first name kind of rolls off the tongue just the right way. Uh, others uh, might work through what, um, what words would rhyme with that name just to make sure a future bully doesn't have any added ammunition. Uh, giving a name is a big deal, and it's a big deal in the Bible too. Uh, naming in the Bible often signals dominion or belonging. So earlier in Genesis, Adam named Eve, and she belonged to him as his beloved bride. God renamed Abraham, showing that Abraham belonged to him as his covenant partner, the one through whom his blessings were going to come. And here God renames Jacob Israel, or he reminds Jacob, really, of his new name. As you may recall from our study of Genesis 32, the name Israel in the Hebrews is actually a play on the word, play on the word for struggle. Um, Israel means God's struggles. But in Genesis 32, verse 28, the angel of God tells us that it was Jacob who struggled with God and prevailed. And perhaps here, God is especially reminding Jacob 
that he should once again hold on to God for blessing and not let go. God may even be saying to Jacob, it's time for you to struggle with me and not against me. How often do you struggle against God instead of with God? God is calling Jacob to live according to his plans and purposes as God will fulfill his promises through Israel. So is it any surprise in verse 11 that God meets Jacob where he is and God reveals who he is as God, right? Yahweh, is, he's not some dainty deity. He is, do you see it there? He is God Almighty. And if he is almighty, then there is nothing and no one mightier than God. This is a declaration that God is all-powerful. Beloved, you must understand that our God has irresistible power, inexhaustible power, infinite power. He has the power to perform what he promises. That's what it means for him to be God Almighty. There's nothing and no one who can constrain him or restrain him. He will accomplish his purposes. He will fulfill his promises. Our God, the God of Jacob, is the God who can do anything he wants to do. He can do all his holy will. And God, he makes himself known to Jacob. And he once again communicates that because of who he is, as God Almighty, he can guarantee the fulfillment of what he promises. Whatever lingering doubts Jacob might have had, he can believe and trust the promises of God Almighty. And here, God, he, he blesses Jacob, Israel, like he blessed Adam. You see those words there? Be fruitful and multiply. They recall God's blessed commission of Adam back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Israel will be the head of a new nation, like Adam was the head of humanity. And in verse 11, God once again promises that Jacob's lineage, his descendants, will be a nation. And you see there, a company of nations. That was actually the same promise that God made to Abram back in Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. The promises, you see, are being passed down from Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob. God, his purposes are coming to fruition. And they, they actually clearly extend beyond the physical descendants of Israel. Through Jacob, the, God would form the people of Israel. Uh, the nation would be, as, as one brother said, kind of the, the womb through which the Messiah would come. The universal blessings of God's salvation would be delivered through the people of Israel in Jesus Christ. But notice clearly that God's purpose of salvation are, are wide, right? There's a, note the plural, a company of nations. They're not just for the nation of Israel. They are for a company of nations. And that means they're, they're for Gentiles too. And just like God promised Abraham that the kings would come from his body, Genesis 17, 6. So God is passing down that promise to Jacob too. Jacob and the people of Israel, they're standing on Mount Sinai. They're receiving this book. They're learning that the people of God won't just be a nation, but that they'll have kings and be a kingdom. And this will be fulfilled in the establishment of the kingdom, especially in David's day. But ultimately, it looks forward to the day when Jesus, King Jesus, arrives. He's the son of Abraham and the son of David, as Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 tells us. And God, he does not leave anything out. He will keep all of his promises. So just like he promised Abraham land in Genesis 12 and 13 and 17, so he promises land to Jacob's descendants here. Indeed, in time, God brought his promise of land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to pass. Think about after the conquest of Canaan, the book of Joshua. After distributing the lands of Canaan to the nation of Israel, Joshua looks around in Joshua chapter 23, verse 14, and he says this, You know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. 
all have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But beloved, this promise of land in Canaan, just like the promise of a king, was but a type and shadow of the true and final promise of God that his people will receive the new heavens and the new earth. As we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And a little later in that same chapter, in verse 16, we learn that the people of God, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Yes, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the ancient people of God, were looking forward to receiving that earthly inheritance in the promised land of Canaan, but their ultimate hopes were for an eternal heavenly land because they wanted to be with a heavenly father. The believing Old Testament saints knew that the earthly inheritance was but a down payment on the eternal heavenly inheritance. And so in verses 13 to 15, we see Israel's response to all these glorious promises God is giving to him. As he did in years before, Jacob, he memorializes his encounter by raising a stone again. Jacob returned to Bethlehem, he returned to the Lord. And the anointing of the stone with oil was a way of kind of consecrating that place, marking it off as where the Lord met with Jacob. Think about when the tabernacle, the place where God would meet with his people in the wilderness was finally erected in Exodus chapter 40, verse 9. Moses anointed it with oil. And that's what Jacob is doing here. He's, he's consecrating that place as a sacred place where God meets with his people. Jacob would want to remember this occasion. This occasion of special revelation of God's grace to him. He had been away from the Lord and from the Lord's land for too long. And God was faithful to bring him back just as he promised. It's important, I think, that we remember God's gracious acts toward us. He's, of course, given us regular memorials in his grace, of his grace in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Right? In both of those ordinances, we remember that Christ died for us. He rose again from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins. We remember that, that Jesus shed his blood for us so that we might be spared of God's wrath. It's, it's good and right for us to remember God's goodness to us in Jesus Christ. But I wonder if there are other occasions in your life that you recognize as a special seasons of God's grace to you. I wonder if you mark them and if you remember them. Uh, consider that, giving thanks to God uh, for, for what he's done in your life, how he's been gracious to you. Dear Christian, Jacob's God, God Almighty, he is your God too. Realize that this is a kindness of God to Jacob in receiving these blessings and these promises. Jacob did not receive this blessing in God's promise because he deserved it. And we know Jacob's character as a deceiver, a grasper, a twister. Now, God is not keeping uh, all of his promises to his people because they had always been faithful to him. No, Jacob received this blessing because God Almighty graciously bestowed it. And God keeps all of his promises because he is always faithful. If you have come to know the saving promises of God, it is not because you've always been faithful, but because God has. God's saving blessings come to flawed people. They come to weak people. They come to, to wicked people like us. Have you come to acknowledge that about yourself? Have you come to acknowledge that you have sins and idols that you need to be delivered from? And friend, God can deliver you. Turn from your sin and your idolatry. Admit your weakness. Admit your wickedness and come to Jesus and be saved. Believe that Jesus is the promised saving offspring of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Believe that Jesus is the one who kept 
is the one through whom God kept his promises of salvation. Believe that Jesus is the one who lived a life of perfect obedience unto God the Father for you. Believe that Jesus is the one who died on the cross, bearing the wrath of God against your idolatry, against your sin. And believe that God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, vindicating and proving to us all that whoever turns from their sins and unites themselves to Jesus Christ will be saved. God keeps all of his promises to his people. Indeed, God keeps his promises through his people. He works through Jacob and his offspring. He works through Jacob and his offspring, even though they have been marred by sin. Having seen the truth that God keeps his promises to sinners, in the final section of Genesis 35, I think we especially learn that God keeps his promises through sinners. The heading for our third and final point is this. God redeems ruined people. God redeems ruined people. Follow along as I read verses 16 to 29. Now, Genesis 35. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And her soul was departing, for she was dying. She called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is a pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Once again, Sin in the family of Jacob rears its ugly head. It is amazing to me uh, how many accuse the people of God of being, you know, quote, holier than thou. And perhaps that's an improper attitude among some who profess the name of Christ. But Christians who know their hearts and their heritage, like we see here in Genesis 35, cannot be marked by a haughty spirit. Instead, we must be marked by humility. For we are sinners, just like the saints who went before us. This section begins with another journey. This time, Jacob and his family are moving from Bethel to go home to see Isaac, his father. And along the way, Rachel, Jacob's second wife, goes into labor. Rachel, you'll recall, engaged in the birth wars with her sister Leah. Rachel struggled to have children. At one point, she, she yelled at Jacob and said, Give me children or I die. And what do we see here? She dies. Well, back amidst those birth wars. Rachel didn't have children until God, in his kindness, 
opened Rachel's womb and gave her a child. Here, she's on the cusp of having this second child that she so longs for. We see she dies in labor. And she names her son, as she dies, before she dies, Ben-Oni, which almost certainly means son of sorrow. Uh, Rachel appears to be full of lament as her life comes to an end. Jacob, of course, doesn't want sorrow to dominate his remembrance of his favorite wife. And now, one of his favorite sons. This is why he renames his son Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, an esteemed and privileged place. In that renaming, we're getting a glimpse of the fact that Jacob is still playing favorites in his family. And favoritism is going to continue to wreck the family. Jacob's favoritism is almost certainly part of the reason why Reuben sins against his father there in verse 22. Reuben wants to establish himself as the head of the family. And so he lays with his father's concubine. Reuben was trying to displace his father as the head of the household. Like Absalom tried to displace his father David in 2 Samuel 16. There, Absalom wanted to steal the throne from his father, David. And so he was given the counsel to go in and lay with his father's concubine to establish himself as the ruler over the family. And so, just as Absalom tried to steal the throne, so Reuben is trying to steal the role of the head of his family. He's effectively saying to Jacob, you're done as the leader of our family. And through this disgusting deed, which is a violation of God's law, we learn later on, Reuben disqualifies himself from carrying the line of the Messiah. Sadly, Jacob, who is now called Israel, reacts to this sin much like he did to Dinah's attack. We're simply told, you see there at the end of verse 22, and Israel heard of it. And that's it. He seems to have heard of it and done nothing about it. Just like he did nothing about Dinah's attack in Shechem. We're seeing that while Jacob may have been made new, he has not been made perfect. This is why God's faithfulness is so crucial. If everything were dependent upon our faithfulness, God's promises would never come to pass. But God is faithful to his promises to sinners, despite our flaws and failings. And from verses 23 to 26, we, we get a listing of the sons of Israel by their mothers. And there are a couple of reasons for this. First, Moses wants us to know that Israel had 12 sons. Nahor, Abraham's brother, had 12 sons back in Genesis 22. That was at a moment where, where Abraham was longing to have sons. Uh, Abraham's son by Hagar, Ishmael, had 12 sons back in Genesis 25. Abraham's longing for sons. But now, Israel is having sons, 12 sons of his own, right? He was supposed to have offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, and it was never really getting going. Just one or maybe two, but now 12. What seemed like impossible promises from God are, are coming true. God is being faithful to keep his promises from these sons, as sinful as they are. God is going to raise up a nation and indeed a company of nations. God is going to keep his promises not only to these sinners, that he will give them a king and a kingdom, but he's actually going to do it through these sinners. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi have all disqualified themselves from carrying the line of the Messiah. The remaining brothers will not only sell their brother Joseph into slavery, but they will lie to and deceive their father. The people of Israel as a nation 
will sadly give themselves to idols. They will forfeit the promised land of Canaan and be sent into exile. And yet, and yet, this is who God uses to bring his son into the world. A very flawed and fallen people. Brothers and sisters, this is how the kingdom of God advances today. It begins small and it grows. Not only that, but God advances his kingdom through sinful people like you and like me. Whenever you are tempted to doubt God's ability to use you or our church family to advance his purposes in the world, just remember Jacob's family and who they are and what they act like. Remember that God loves sinners so much that he redeems them. Remember that our God loves to use sinners so that we will all know that salvation and reconciliation come not by man's power, but by God's power. In fact, we should dare to hope that that is the reason that Genesis 35 concludes as it does. You see there in verse 27, we're told that Jacob, he made it to his father's house, made it to Isaac's house in Hebron. Moses mentions that Abraham and Isaac, he mentions them, and that calls to our minds the fact that God's promises have really been faithfully passed down. God has passed down the promises of God to Abraham and Isaac and now to Jacob. And God has kept his promises to sinners from generation to generation. And in verse 28, we're told of Isaac's very old age. In verse 29, Isaac dies. But notice, notice how verse 29 ends. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. The last time we saw Esau was in Genesis 33 when Jacob deceived him again. He deceived his brother again. Jacob promised to meet Esau and Seir, but instead he went in the other direction to Shechem. But here they are together, burying their father. Those two brothers, Jacob and Esau, have been reconciled. Jacob's deceit overcome. They learned forgiveness. And as the narrative of Genesis moves from one generation of brothers to the next, the next generation of brothers, the twelve they're going to need to learn forgiveness too. And they're going to be taught forgiveness by their own brother, Joseph. They will fight and hurt and harm one another. And God will intervene to redeem these brothers ruined by sin. That's what he does in each subsequent generation of sinners. He teaches them afresh what it means that he is a God who keeps his promises to sinners and through sinners. And as we conclude, beloved, consider that that is what the faithfulness of God is for us and to us. God will not abandon his purposes, his plans, his promises, or his people. Over and over again, God will call us to leave behind our idols and return to him in worship. Over and over again, God will remind us of his promises and how they can never fail because he can never fail. Over and over again, God will work through sinners to like us to advance his kingdom. And you can be sure that he will be faithful to you your whole life long. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And just as he was faithful to a very flawed people in Genesis 35 to continue and further his promises, so he is faithful to a very flawed people, flawed people today. His nearness and his faithfulness is our good. His faithful and abiding attachment to us is our good. So will you give up your idols and sins and give yourself to him? Will you rest in his power to fulfill his promises in Jesus Christ? 
Will you strive to be faithful to the God who has been faithful to you? Let's pray for that grace now. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love for us. Father, we pray and ask that you would fill our hearts with thankfulness for your faithfulness to us, despite our sin and wickedness. Father, would you continue to transform us through the work of your Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ in our hearts. Father, would you make us ever more faithful to you? And we give you thanks that you will be faithful to your promises to the end. Help us to always hope in you, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.